What if you were able to sit down for lunch with some of the greatest leaders in the world? What would you ask? What would they say? Welcome to the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where you're invited to join us in learning the spiritual principles behind big success. Here's your host, Mike Lynch. You know, I think sometimes in life we look at some people and go, well, they just arrived there. No, hard work and obedience really, really matter, both in life and leadership and in our walk as a believer. Today on episode 169 of the Lynch Leader Podcast, we sit down with Pastor Joby Martin, lead pastor of the Church of 1122 in Jacksonville, Florida, and we talk about this hard work, obedience, and Joby's life as he looks back on his journey and he looks at what Jesus has done for him, and we unpack it all today. Well, if I've never met you before, my name is Mike, and it is my honor to get to be on this leadership journey with you as we're all seeking to be the leaders that we were created to be in the spaces and places that God has put us. Today's a fun one. Uh, I have followed Pastor Joby from afar through the years since launching Church of 1122 in 2012, he's led them to be one of America's largest and greatest churches. He's co-authored two books with Charles Martin, the great author who we've had on here, If the Tomb is Empty, and his latest is Anything Anything is Possible. And we're going to talk, and we'll reference a little bit of those. He's been married to his wife, Gretchen, for over 20 years, and they have two amazing children. But today, Pastor Joby talks about some of the lessons he's learned in life, in leadership, in ministry, before ministry, and how God's ultimate hand has been on him the entire time. I'm telling you, this is just one of those. It's one of, and I and I hate to say this, but I feel I feel like I need to. It's one of my favorites. And um, I loved Pastor Joby before I connected with him. And I loved him even more after meeting him. And I think you will, too. You're going to want to go out and pick up his books. Hopefully, we'll have him on again soon, talking about his newest book, Anything is Possible. But today's a, today's a special one. So I want you to pull up a chair from wherever you're listening from today. And I want you to listen in to my conversation with Pastor Joby Martin. Well, Pastor Joby, it is such an honor to get to sit down with you today. Thanks for joining me. My pleasure, man. Thanks for the invite. Well, this this has been something I've looked so forward to. You know, we use a phrase on this podcast all the time that I heard from a guy named Ron Dunn, who was a great, great old Bible teacher. He used to say, God never wastes our time, and he never wastes our experiences. As you look back at your journey, you pastor one of America's greatest churches now, People would assume you just grew up every Sunday morning, man, getting your Sunday school pins, dropping your dime in the offering plate. But that wasn't your story, was it? No, my story's not that at all. I, I didn't grow up in church at all. Uh, I did grow up in the South, a little place called Dillon, South Carolina. And uh, so I grew up believing in God as much as I believed in SEC football and NASCAR and Santa Claus and Easter Bunny. But no, I didn't grow up in church at all. Um, through a series of events, got in some trouble in high school, found myself at a at an old Southern Baptist summer camp cutting grass mm. so that I didn't have to do community service hours in a jumpsuit. And uh, a football coach 
ran that camp, a guy named Coach Bull Lee. And uh, as a teenager, he led me to Christ, and I was radically saved um, in that moment, man. And then got home, and the Jesus I experienced at camp and and my experience in the local church was not exactly the same thing. So it took me a, a pretty good while to get plugged into the local church. You look back, you should have never gotten the trouble, but if you don't get the trouble, get in the trouble, you don't end up at that camp. What would look different about your life if you hadn't met Bull Lee, that coach who took a liking to you? What would be different about Joby Martin if you hadn't met him? I mean, everything would be different. I'd be lost. I'd be chasing after all the things that the world has to offer, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. I mean, I think the enemy tends to use one of those to go after, you know, people. I, I could fail at all three in a minute. And um yeah, I, I mean, I think I would I think I would completely be conformed to the pattern of this world. Um and it's amazing that God radically saved me. And, you know, in Genesis chapter 50, people love to misquote this verse about, about Joseph. And they used, they love to say, you know, what you intended for evil, God used for good. But that's not what it says. That God doesn't, God's not running an ambulance. He's not playing cleanup, man. It's, he says, Joseph looks at his brothers and says, what God intended or what, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Mm, mm. And so God is even sovereign over our own mistakes and sins and bad habits. And I mean, that's, that's the crazy sovereign grace of a loving heavenly father that he can use even our terrible decisions where we are rejecting him. And somehow he is at work in all things, including those things for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. It's, it is, it is something I've taught for 30 years and I still scratch, scratch my head going, I don't get it. And I don't understand it. What about how you grew up drives how you lead today? What would you say? You know, something that's interesting is um, even though we didn't grow up in church and even though my dad has never read me the Bible, other than like saying the blessing, we've never like prayed together or for, for a long time, we didn't. Um, and in fact, for 30 years, I prayed for that man's salvation. Okay. Mm -hmm. And he was as lost as it gets. And he just put his faith in Jesus last year. Did he really? Yes. And oh, even with all that, though, the idea, when I would read in the Bible that God is our heavenly father, that made a ton of sense to me because of who my dad is. I mean, he's a good man. He works hard. Um, he was faithful. He showed up to everything. He coached all my stuff. And um, I would, you know, I would know kids and they'd be church kids and their dad may or may not show interest in them on the field. My daddy was there all the time. Now, he wasn't the most, <laughs> he wasn't the most like emotional man or loving man or whatever. You know what I mean? But man, he was supportive. He was good. He was there. He was a good dad. And, um, and so when I would read in the Bible that 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 we serve a heavenly father, it made a ton of sense to me. And then not only that, it was like his work ethic. I mean, I can remember when I felt called to ministry. All right. I was uh I went to Virginia Commonwealth University, got accepted to medical school. And um, even though I was a believer, I wanted to go be a doctor primarily for two reasons. I mean, God had given me the brain, I could do it, 
but it was to be rich and respected. Mm. And I knew that if I was Doc Martin, I would be rich and respected. And, um, man, I was volunteering at my church, teaching the Bible on Wednesday night. Before I know it, I'm in, I'm like teaching every Wednesday night and we're doing a disciple now weekend. Remember those? <laughs> and, um, <laughs> very well, the guy gives a call and this was, this was the Southern Baptist church. So, you know, that there's always a call of salvation, rededication, and anybody want to go into vocational ministry. Yep. And I felt like God just called me into ministry. And so, you know, nothing at a Southern Baptist church happens in the pews. It's all down front. You got to go tell the pastor. So I go down and tell him. And then I remember having to call my dad and sit down and tell him, daddy, I'm not going to med school. I'm going to go to seminary. Mm. And I remember thinking he is going to be so disappointed. I mean, he's not even a believer at that point. Right. And so I take, I sit him down and I'd already been accepted and all that. And I said, I'm not going to seminary. I mean, I'm not going to med school. I'm going to seminary. And at first he said, what's seminary? And I said, well, it's like a school for, to become a preacher. And he said, why do you need a school for that? You only work a half a day a week and starting one book. <laughs> I was like, well, <clears throat> and he, he said, so what are you going to do? And I said, I think, I think I'm going to be a youth pastor. He gave me some incredible advice. He said, boy, you don't get up and go to fun. You get up and go to work. Hmm. And, um, I mean, that landed on me pretty heavy. And in fact, I think we have a generation right now they get some terrible advice, which is just find your passion. Well, the word passion is actually Latin for suffering. It's it's actually pointing at the crucifixion of Jesus. Mm. But what people really mean is get up and go to fun. Just find mm. out whatever is most fun for you and pursue that. We were created for so much more than that. Mm. And um, that that is that has had a big impact on me, even though at this point in my life, um, I feel like I was created to do what I do for a living. But if you're not willing to grind through the grind, you'll never, ever get to the part that's fun. Mm. And I learned that from my daddy. And he's, he's I mean, he's, he works and works and works and works. And there, there's something about that, that, that blue collar, roll up your sleeves. How has that served you well, whether you were a, a college pastor a youth pastor, now a senior pastor of a of a huge, huge church. How has that, you get up and go to work, how has that driven you to be who you are today? Um, while I'm all for, uh, the term these days is self-care. I don't know if I love that. I don't see the, I mean, imagine having the conversation with the Apostle Paul about self-care. <laughs> I mean, he's talking about, <laughs> I have fought the fight. I have finished the race. I have poured myself mm. out mm. for your sake. All right. Now I do think we were created to live in healthy rhythms. I think it's biblical to have daily, weekly, monthly, seasonally rhythms. Like God created things in six days and then took a day off. Okay. Mm. That, that we were created to live in that kind of rhythm. Um, I don't think we were created to like run at a medium pace. I've heard that phrase a lot and not so much lately, but especially I'm, I'll be 50 this year. So 10, 15 years ago, every church leader I know would say, you know, you got to slow down and you got to run at a medium pace. I don't think that's biblical at all. Mm. I don't think mediocrity is biblical. I don't want to be, that's like, you know, South Carolina football. Is that what you want? I mean, you can like win six games. You probably go to a bowl game, but you ain't going to be great. Oh, that's fantastic. I want to be, I want to work hard 
for six days and then stop completely, not hmm. just slow everything down to what is comfortable. And so um, I definitely run, learned the run hard part from my dad. I, how so? And I'd love to dive in on that. When you get up every day, what's a successful day to you? What does a what is a day when you when you get ready to lay your head on the pillow at night? You go, that was a good day. That was a well spent day. What would that look like to you? Well, what's interesting is is my day is is there are no two days in the week that are the same, you know. So I think it'd be very different if I had a a job where I do similar things every day. Um, our first service of the weekend begins on Thursday, so I preach once on Thursday and and twice on Sunday, and so I primarily wake up every day and think about preaching. Yeah. Uh, it is also my primary role here at our church. I mean, I lead it, but. We have a lot of great leaders around me, but I'm the primary teaching pastor. So I think about that first, but I think the answer to that question for the believer, I think the greatest advice for success in all of the Bible, and I know that's a bold claim, but in John chapter two, verse five, Jesus is at the wedding at Canaan and uh, Cana and, uh, and they run out of wine and Mary comes to him and says, Hey, they need more wine. And he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? And then Mary brings the servants over to Jesus. And here's what she tells them to do. And I think what she tells them to do ought to be the believer's measure of success. She looks at the service and says these very simple words, do whatever he tells you to do. That's it, man. So you just do that. And that's the thing. It's not going to be the same for me and you. That's right. That's right. Right. It's not going to, especially, especially if you're a coach, you're a business owner, like success for me in, in, in a day is very different than, what that person is to do. And here's what's crazy about that event. What Jesus told those dudes to do was ridiculous. Mm. Go get six mm. stone jars. That don't make no sense because what people have been doing is washing their hands for like three or four days in those jars. They're nasty. Then he says, go fill them up with more water. Well, what are we doing that for, Jesus? Then he says, anybody got a ladle? Why do we need a ladle? All right, dip some out. What are you talking about? Now, would you take it to the master of ceremonies? Are you trying to punk me? What are you doing? Okay, so there are five things that he tells them to do. None of them in their five-year strategy make any sense at all. And little did they know there's a miracle hanging on the other end of five steps of obedience. Mm, mm. See, that's the biggest thing. Like me becoming the lead pastor of 1122, this was not like a life plan that I had marked out. It just goes all the way back to my junior year of college. And he said, don't go to don't go to the medical school, go to seminary. Well, that don't make no sense. And then he said, be a youth pastor. And then he moved me around a few times. And if I'd have said no to any of those, who knows where my life is now. And little did I know that I get to be a part of, of this church now. Even though I didn't see any of those other things as stepping stones to what I'm doing now, I was just trying to be faithful to what he told me to do in that moment. You know, it's so funny. We were talking about your time in Athens and, and doing college ministry. The passion that you had to walk in that BSU for the night they met is probably the mm -hmm. same passion you have to walk on that stage Thursday night in Jacksonville, Florida. But it's just a different context, but same obedience, right? You can even take it back further than that, man. My first time I was like in charge, like I was the youth pastor at a church. It was Mount Olivet Baptist Church in Beaver Dam, Virginia. 
They had three kids in the youth group. I don't even know why they would pay a person a hundred dollars a week or whatever they gave me to even do that for three kids. Anyway, I showed up and about three weeks, man, we had quadrupled that thing up to 12. And I thought you can change the world with 12 disciples. Let's go. And I, I honest to goodness thought if I spend the rest of my life, just discipling these 12, that'll be a life well spent. Six of those are in full-time ministry, by the way. And, um, I mean, I, it's definitely a different scale. Yep. But there's no difference in my step of obedience to just open the Bible and teach it to people that God would allow me to shepherd. It's the same thing. And I think the reason I get to sit where I sit now is because of obedience from back then. That's right. You know, it's so funny. You think about it. So I'm 50. I just turned 54. You turned 50. So just a couple steps ahead of you. I'd have been getting out of high school when you were getting in. You, you think about it, and there's such a generation now that goes, man, I want it. My dream ministry job will be to work at 1122 or work at North Point or work at Passion City or work at North Star where I pastor. They don't want to go to Mount Olivet. What did you learn at Mount Olivet that you wouldn't have learned if you had ended up on a big stage at, at Church of 1122 that you're at now? What did God season in you as a leader that you didn't even know he was working on them, but you see it in the rearview mirror now? The first thing I learned that I think especially church planners get wrong is that God does not give churches to pastors. He gives pastors to churches. The church is not there to serve you and your dream for your life. God has a vision for you, but it is of him and his glory. And he has a bride and it ain't. It's not you. It is a collection of God's people that you are there to serve. I mean, I think this is what the Gospel of John is talking about. When when John the Baptist crews like, hey, boss, there's more people going to Jesus. They're leaving our ministry. They're going to his ministry. And he's like, do you even realize why we exist? Can you imagine going into a wedding and disrupting the wedding and trying to get all the attention on you, a guest? Mm. instead mm. of the couple getting married. So, the I mean, so literally in that, think about how brilliant that analogy is. Can you imagine how offended the groom would be as, at, as the bride is walking down the aisle? You jumped up and was like, hey, why is everybody looking at her? Why don't we look at me? Why we got to sing her songs? Let's sing my songs, right? If you made it about you. And when people left the the, the wedding ceremony, they were talking about you instead of the the bride will, I think about this all, I tell my church all the time. I was like, listen, if you walk out of here talking about me instead of Jesus, we are doing this all wrong. That's right. And he's going to be mad at me because I'm a groomsman supposed to point to him. And so, I mean, that's the role of every believer, not just people that work at church. That is, that is solid. If you could tell a young leader in any industry something you've learned by working with great leaders, being a great leader, leading great leaders on your staff, What's what are some tips that you would give a young leader that goes, man, I want God to use me in my field, whatever that field may be. I want God to use me greatly one day. What would you tell them? Um, <clears throat> well, Jesus says, if you want to be great, you serve. But here's what this means, I think. Why in the world would you ever expect God to give you authority if you have not learned to live under authority? Most people can't get over what God has under them because they've never learned to live under what God has over them. 
That is the so biggest good, thing, man. man. And if you really believe in his sovereignty, you don't have to self-promote anymore. That's right. I mean, you go back to Joseph, and he's in jail, right? It's not even his fault. And he tells the cupbearer, he's like, hey, y'all remember me when you go see Pharaoh. And then they don't even remember him. But then when they finally do, because Pharaoh's having these crazy dreams, he has his opportunity in front of the Pharaoh to self-promote. Because mm. the, the, the Pharaoh's like, hey, I hear you can interpret dreams. And he could say, of course I can. And let me tell you my differentiating factors and why you should choose me and get me on a That's not what he says. He says, nope. Only God can interpret dreams. Now, what we miss there is that Pharaoh thought he was God. But here's what Joseph is doing. I am trusting God for the promotion, not me. Mm. Now, it doesn't mean that David didn't well, work. I mean, that Joseph didn't work hard. He worked hard. He did his part for sure. He had a strategy. He had a pre-seven-year strategy, uh, uh, when-it-gets-lean strategy. So he worked hard. He worked very, very hard. He just knew that only God can promote and lift him up. And, and then you see it in the New Testament in Philippians chapter 2 that our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God, something to be grasped. And then all the next verses are basically, he humbled himself to a point you can't even get your mind around to the cross. That's right. That's right. And then he trusted God to lift him up. Dude, that's so good. And and the great part about it is you never end up anywhere easy. There, there's no just doubt. nothing easy about it, baby. It's going to be stretching and pulling <laughs> and grinding and, you know, we were talking about the Braves a few minutes ago. They're up early in the morning down there fielding ground balls, doing the basics, getting Here's ready. Thing, I, I helped coach football for my son's team and coach weightlifting for their team. And I was so aggravated at those boys a couple months ago because they're they're whining about, you know, whatever. It's hot. And I'm like, you live in Florida. Of course it's hot. And and they're lifting. And, and, and I, I got so mad at them. And I just yelled, all of you want to be strong. None of you want to be sore. Oh, and the spirit of God said, <laughs> that's also the church. Oof. Like we, it's some of our prayers. We're about to start studying the book of James in this summer at our church. We, we pretty much just go like verse by verse through books yep. of the Bible here. <clears throat> and James says, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Now here's what blows me away about that, man. Most of us can look over our shoulder and thank God for the trials in our past and how we have seen him use them in the past. And now we can be like, oh, thank you that you were shaping me back then. That's not what James says. James says, when you face it, like mm -hmm. you haven't learned the lesson yet. And what's crazy is so many of us, me included, will pray to God to take us out of the environment that he is willfully putting us into for our own betterment and discipleship I, I mean i'm telling you man the the fruit of character development is most often grown in difficult situations and relationships and yet we we think we want god to just petri dishes that's right just grow us in a lab and then put us at the end of the race there's nothing in the bible that points to that whatsoever it's so funny. There's a guy here in Atlanta. His name's Chip Smith. So Chip has trained 3,000 
players that have gone on the NFL. Guy's been doing it since the 70s. It's unbelievable. He's a legend. When you go in, if you're ever up here, I got to get you over there. You walk in his Hall of Fame room, and it's every guy in the NFL Hall of Fame or in their sports Hall of Fame that's trained with him. He said he's had one player, one player in his 30 years that he could never find his pain threshold, and it was Brian Urlacher. Oh, <laughs> he said, I never, he said, every player has a pain threshold and they'll grow. Cause I don't know if you've heard Sam Chan say, we only grow to the threshold of our pain. That's as yeah. far as we can grow. He said, Erlacher, I could never find his threshold. I could never, he was in Erlacher's contract for 13 years. He was written into his contract that he trained with chip in the off season. What's been the biggest area as a leader? You you pastored out this great church, but yet yeah. God's still stretching you and growing you. What's been the biggest area of stretching the soreness part for you as a leader that you've had to go through and maybe even still growing through as a pastor leader? Yeah, there's a lot there. I mean, I, I definitely have a long way to go. There's no doubt about that. Um, I think leading through people can be very difficult. You can be a great leader. Um, and if it just stays with you as the expert surrounded by helpers, that's fine. But if you ever scale, whatever the organization is that you're in charge of, you have to begin to lead through people and the way they do it might not be the way you do it. That, that that's a thing. Another thing is, especially if you're, if you have a relational bent, like I do, and I lead a church. So, you know, our bottom line is the great commission. So just a little different people you love and care for so much they can't always keep up and um the mission of the great commission for us and the glory of god and the advancement of his kingdom is more important than how the people around you feel and that is a hard thing to do to look at somebody and they were great up to a couple thousand people but now they've just left been left behind it's a very very difficult thing to lead through another major pain point for me that I learned. I wish I could go back to my early self and tell myself this, man, I'm a good news guy. I am an encourager. I love to give good news. If you don't like that, you should not be a preacher because that's what you do. You preach the good news. And what I thought was speaking life into somebody, they heard his promises. Mm -hmm. And so you fast forward 10 years and they think I was lying to them. But 10 years ago, what I was trying to do is breathe life into him and say, hey, man, I see a great leader in you. I could see you taking this amount of responsibility. I think you have what it takes. Now, they don't really pay attention to the next five years where they didn't do their part to continue to grow or we <laughs> outgrew them. But when it gets to the point where I'm saying that we've outgrown you, what they heard was, oh, but I thought you promised me this next campus. And so what what. What you can intend as encouragement can sound like promises and eventually promises unkept. Yep. That's tough. And it, and when you love people, it's tougher. And oh, when and you got it, you got into ministry because you love people, but sometimes that is the difficulty in it. Give everybody a little picture of the scale. Cause we got a lot of listeners that may, <clears throat> you, you guys, I believe are the, the greatest church in America most people just don't even know about. Unless you live in that Jacksonville area or you're a church person like I am, if you're a ball coach or a CEO, you may go, I, 
I've heard of it, but I don't know. Give everybody a little picture of the scale that you guys sit on there in Jacksonville. Okay, we we planted in uh, ten years ago in in 2012, <clears throat> and grew pretty rapidly. Right now, we're at uh, ten campuses. Two of those are in prisons, which are pretty cool. Our our like regular weekend butts in the seats attendance this weekend would have been a little over fifteen thousand, with a probably you know a little over twenty thousand people in Jacksonville and the surrounding area would say that's my church. You know they got the sticker on their yeah. car and they show up once a month or whatever. And then and then we have pretty significant online online reach of about twenty five thousand like live people pushing buttons with eleven twenty two online watching us there. Uh, about 300 staff. We also have um, a retreat center, which is 3,200 acres in, in the coastal plains of South Georgia. So it has its own staff. And then we, plus we have two uh, thrift stores that operate more like a, I mean, don't think, don't think a stinky thrift store. Cause one of the rules I had to the crew when we started it, I said, if this thing smells like a foot, I'm shutting it down that day. Okay. So but we, we had, they're, they're more like, boutique clothing stores to, yep. um, in a couple of areas of the city. So we've got a few things going on and we're planning, we're in the process of planning three more campuses, right? Are now. you really? Yeah. Holy mo Do you ever walk in and go, I don't belong here anymore. Do you ever go through that as a leader? <clears throat> I have a, I have a couple simultaneous thoughts that you really have to hold in tension. So on the one hand, like, let's just say this last weekend, okay, I get done preaching, walk off the stage. I got saved at camp. So 1122 is really like the last night at camp. I yeah. preach my face off. We call for response. People come forward and kneel and pray. And I mean, it's a big deal, right? And I'm I'm standing on the front row. The altar is like five rows deep, man. Just people on their face up there crying out to God. And I think... This feels just like it did day one. We're not doing anything different. We're just singing and talking, just trying to make much of the Lord. So on the one hand, I feel that. And then on the other hand, I um, we had this event here last night. And um, Gary LaVox from Rascal Flats is here doing some stuff. And Tebow's here. He goes to church here. And we're we're raising awareness and money for like the foster care system and particularly this this place called Seamart Ranch here in Jacksonville. And our band is up there leading worship. And there's all these Seamark kids. These are kids that are in significant family trauma to where they can't live at home right now. And so they have to live in these these Christian homes that we we support and provide. And I'm watching about 20 girls, probably middle school and high school, on the front row hands up, worshiping, eyes closed so they know all the words, and they're singing songs that our band wrote and recorded. Mm. And I think, holy moly. I mean, listen, <clears throat> this thing started with an idea with me and my wife at the at the kitchen table, thinking maybe we should try this. And honestly, it wasn't really even my idea. It was my senior pastor, Pastor Jerry Sweat, Beach United Methodist Church, the best Christian I've ever met in my entire life. He wakes up every day, reads his Bible, and acts like it. That's just what he does. And it, he looked at me in a meeting and said, listen, I think we should launch a church. You should launch a church, and you be the senior pastor. And then he said, and I just have a piece about this. And I thought, well, that's funny because I just threw up in my mouth a little bit. So it's funny how the spirit <laughs> manifests himself differently in different folks. So, <clears throat> but, but, man, when you have this idea 
and then see God bring it to life, it can be it can be a bit overwhelming. What's the biggest weight of leadership that you carry? So when you were when you were sitting around your kitchen table with your wife and looking at that napkin and going, I think we can do this, and Jerry Sweat tells you that to walking in that room and seeing the responsibility in front of you that night, what what would you say is the biggest weight that that you carry you never dreamed you'd be carrying? Okay. So, so I know it's, it's Jesus's church. It's not my church. Okay. He makes that very clear in the book of Matthew, Caesarea Philippi, upon this rock, I will build my church. All right. But the book of Hebrews says, I will stand before the Lord and give an account for how I shepherd this flock. Right. So the fact that it is, everything is my responsibility. So <clears throat> all I've done for my adult life is be on church staff. First, paid deal at church. I was 19, 49, right this minute, turned 50 in September. And I can remember being in meetings at previous churches and somebody would have some finance update and it wouldn't be going good. And I remember as the youth pastor think somebody better do something about that. Cause I need my pizzas for Wednesday night, you know? <laughs> and, I, and then we opened this church and it was great. We had, we had over 3000 people come on the first Sunday. So we knew right. something was going on. All right. And none of them gave anything. And I remember we're about two weeks in going, I don't know if we can do church another weekend. Mm. And I have leveraged every, well, I didn't have anything. So if it all went belly up, I would have been out dozens of dollars. So we'd be fine. But, <laughs> but I remember looking at the finances like three weeks in and I did not have anyone to hand that off to. And I still don't have anyone to hand that off to because leaders take responsibility That's for right. everything going on. I can remember um, <clears throat> we're probably about a year in and uh, we had grown from maybe we started with 14 staff people. We'd grown to maybe 30 or something like that. That's when Ryan Britt came on staff and we were doing a, we were doing an offsite all staff meeting, big vision casting thing. <clears throat> and one of the guys was in my truck that started with me and we pull up and he goes, wow, did you ever think we'd have 30 staff? Are you excited? What do you see? And I looked out at all these cars and I said, I see 30 mortgages. Because mm. a bunch of the people we'd hired too were husband and wife and they moved their whole family here. And, and I'd never, ever, ever thought about that or considered that. And so just the the feeling of responsibility for the people. Cause listen, right. regardless of what you do, if somebody comes and works for you, I mean, I know there's some other things to it, but you know, that they need a paycheck and all that stuff, but fundamentally they believe in you. That's right. They believe that you are going to do what you said you were going to set out to do. Mm. And so that's probably the biggest pressure. Well, and you, and you and I both have been in it long enough there's a lot of people mean you started the race with ain't they're not running anymore. And you, and, yeah. and it's not a name on a piece of paper anymore. It was a buddy you sat beside in seminary or a guy you used to have lunch with at Applebee's and talk about student ministry. And you look around and either they're not in ministry or they went home to be with the Lord, one of the two. And you sit there now where you're at, how do you stay fresh? So you're, you're, you're 49 years old. You are, generating just some crazy momentum down there that the Lord's using you guys there in this Jacksonville community and that region. What do you do to stay fresh? So when you stand up next Thursday, 
That's a fresh word from Jesus that they're getting, not some microwaved up stuff. How, how do you do that? Well, one of the incredible assets that I have is I'm surrounded by uh, an incredible team that understands their part of the body of Christ or understands their role on the team, you know, and they understand that the best thing for our church is the best version of me every weekend. And so I am able to not just like prioritize my schedule, but schedule my priorities. And so I write 99% of my sermons in the woods, in a deer stand. If it's deer season, we got hogs here, so I'll hunt those too. And it's turkey season in North Florida. So it's back to what I was talking about with rhythms, man. I yeah. start the my first day of the week on Monday morning. The first thing I do is I'm up way before sun up. I'm in the woods. I'm wind the word. And I pray the same prayer every week. God, they're not my sheep. They're your sheep. You're the chief shepherd. I'm the under shepherd. I'm just working for you until it's my turn to hand it off. So what do you want to say to your people? Because he does not owe me a sermon. And I pray and I read his word. And for 10 years without fail, I mean, one of God's greatest graces in my life beyond my salvation um, is that he's given me a sermon. Amen. And and I, I feel such a reliance on him. And I haven't, you know, I haven't felt that. Now I get influenced by other people for sure. And I listen to a whole bunch of other great preachers and that kind of stuff. But but I want a fresh word from God for his people for here and now. And so, so I get to live pretty healthy rhythms and, mm -hmm. and that, that keeps my, my heart stirred up for him. That's the other thing. <clears throat> I mean, the, you know, the Puritans would call it mortification and vivification. The John Owen would say, you better be killing the sin or it'll be killing you. Mm -hmm. So you better be at war against some stuff that's trying to rob your affections for the Lord, but that's not enough. You also need to, Make sure you have those things in your life that are filling you up towards him. That's good. And uh, in fact, if I haven't been in the woods in a while, my wife would be like, you might want to go hunting. <laughs> I think there's a better version of you that comes home from the woods than breathes air conditioned air too much. That's that is that. And everybody's got something like that. That can, I heard an old sports psychologist, uh, Jack Llewellyn, used to be with the Braves from 91 to 05. Jack, Jack said, if you're going to operate at peak efficiency on a scale of 10, you're going to be at a nine or a 10. If you stay there, you won't make, you won't make it. You got to have something that pulls you back to a three or a four for you. It's going in the woods for another guy, right. maybe going on the golf course, whatever it is, <clears throat> but you've got that. Do you take yeah. a sabbatical? Have you taken do you take one a year? Do you? How do you handle that part of it? I took one sabbatical, and I I won't do it that way anymore. Mm -hmm. um, I think constant rhythms are better than, at least for me. Yep. You know, I did like this three month superstar vacation thing, and it was pretty terrible. So, but my elders told me to. I pushed <laughs> it off five years, so then I finally did, it, and I ain't doing that anymore. Uh. But because the key is. Uh, um, Larry Osborne says this. Yep. He's an incredible leader, Love right? Larry. He says, you, you got to measure the fruit, not the watering schedule. So the point is like, so what are you trying to accomplish in the sabbatical? Time of the Lord, refresh with your family, you know, got that kind of thing. So you should build it from there, not, well, all my other famous Christian pastor friends take right. three months off every five years in the fall, so I got to do what they do. Well, I tried it. It didn't work for me. 
So I think rhythms are are more important. I also think I t- I talked to a bunch of church leaders. You mentioned this, bro. But it used to be when when we read about somebody falling, a, a, a ministry leader falling, it, it might as well have been Elvis or Chewbacca. We didn't know these people. We just knew about them. Now, these days, whoever you read about, me and you, we have them in our phones. I mean, yep. we talk to them, right? It seems to me, pastors, any leader, there's a few, there's a few things that I see in common. Fundamentally, here's what it comes down to if it's moral failure. Somebody begins down a road, the Spirit of God taps them on the shoulder and says, whoa, and the person goes, I got this, and you ain't got this. Everything else is just details, yep. okay? But here's some things, because I, I don't know why, but I'm enamored when people fall. I want to dig in and see what happened and all that kind of stuff, you know? Maybe it's out of just insecurity. I don't know what it is. A couple things. One is most of these it's for sure true of men and women. It's just the people that I looked at have been men. Most of these men don't have any kind of local authority over them. So if you're a pastor, you better have elders. If you're a CEO, you better have a board of people that love you and are for you. But somebody's got to be in a position to tell you no. You make a terrible Holy Spirit for you. Okay. Secondly, there's so many leaders that don't have real friends. I mean, like, if you have not been the butt of a joke in the last 14 days, something is wrong. Mm. If people only refer to you by your title instead of your name, you don't have friends. And we have, like, a high honor culture in our church. Like, if people walked in my office, they'd call me Pastor Joby. However, there's some dudes that I just run around with. Some of them are my elders. Some of them are staff guys. And, and. And they can, and we're just friends. Like we can talk about our wives and being a dad and how much the dogs are going to go three peat, you know, whatever it is. We can lament when our team loses, whatever. Okay. And then the third one, and I think this is the one particularly gets pastors in trouble is you better have a life giving hobby. Mm. And the reason I say life giving is because there's, man, if you're a leader, here's what I see happen. All right. If you're, if you're a leader, if you're an entrepreneur, there's a thing in you that rose you to the top and you like that zinc. You like being at the head of the table. You like making the decision. You like it when there is confusion in the air and you can bring clarity. Because that's, that's what right. leaders do. Okay. So then what happens is if all of that effort and energy is just around your job or your organization or whatever, and nothing ever steals your mind away, then, then what people do is they go looking for that zing in an unhealthy place. So I, you'll hear about pastors like a like that drink way too much or talking to people that aren't their wife or this weird gambling thing. Do you know what I mean? Yep. Um, so you better find. So for me, as dumb as it is, I know if you're not a hunter, this sounds so dumb to you, but tomorrow morning I'm going to be in the Turkey woods and I think I've got one roosted. I think I know where a gobbler is. And right as the sun's about to break that thing's going to go. And I'm going to tell you, <laughs> and, and I've got, today is a long day for me. I got meetings late into the night and I'm launching a book. So I got all this stuff going on. Right. And every little gap of time today, I'm thinking about, do I have my shells in the right place? I got it. It's the first day I'm going to be in season. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure I know where my, my water boots are. Make sure I'm going to set two alarms. So I, but it just, 
but it's not a thing that's like detrimental to my health, my family, my mental health, any of that. And so it could be anything, man. It could be golf or motorcycle so, riding or weightless, some kind of thing. And Rick Warren told me this. He said, if you work with your hands, you should probably rest with your mind. But if you work with your mind, you should probably rest with your hands. Well, not everything I do is with my mind. I just yep. think stuff, write stuff, talk stuff. And so I love not only the hunting part of it, but just walking around in the woods and filling up feeders and checking cameras and pretending like I'm going to be on meat eater next week. You know, it just, it just helps. You know, the healthiest thing about that is when you put on the boots and you go in the woods, you're just another guy. Ain't nothing special about you. Ain't nobody (laughs) checking the camera for you. Ain't nobody getting everything set up for you. It's just, we tell our staff, this is one of the lessons we tell our staff too. I said, everybody ought to volunteer somewhere where you're nobody. I'll be in a ball field tonight. And guess what? When the ball game's over, I got to empty them trash cans outside the field, outside the high school baseball field, because they got to get empty and they got to get to the dumpster. And that's going to be my job tonight. And nobody cares who I am or what I do for a living. So I, I, there's this place called D dot ranch right down the road here from us. And that's where I'm going to hunt tomorrow morning. And when, when they do big group hunts, I've all those guys go to our church. Um, but I Turkey guide for them. That's fantastic. And I'm the lowest guy on the totem pole. Cause I'm the newest. And I mean, one of the guys has his own TV show. I mean, these guys, they all come here to, for me to preach, but if I need to learn how to call a turkey, I am the low guy on the pole. It is so good. And you're right, man. I coached, I coached my son, all my son's sports, you know, and um, yeah, it's great to be in an environment where nobody it, calls you Pastor Joby. It's just a good, I remember on a, one of my indelible impre- impressions, uh, Andy and I met when our boys were 10 at a Dizzy Dean baseball tournament, Andy Stanley. And I remember taking our boys over when they were 12 to play them on a Saturday morning in Alpharetta. And it had rained all night. And I saw this guy out there with big old muck boots on. And he's got the he's got the the line and he's, he's putting the chalk down the line. It was Andy. He was just a dad. Yeah. And that's yeah. the beauty of it is you get it. And I yep. think one of the reasons, Joby, God uses you so much as you do get it. You've written two great books. One of them I've read. One of them I cannot wait to get my hands on. Your last book on If the Tomb Was Empty. Mm-hmm. You talk about Abraham and Isaac. And I want to talk about this for a second. God used this impossible situation and a flawed joker named Abraham's obedience to teach some great lessons. What did you learn most writing that book? You talk about the seven mountains in scripture. Mm -hmm. What did you learn the most about how God uses people in their obedience while you wrote that? Well, I think a pretty good definition of discipleship is just your next step of obedience. Pretty good definition of leadership is what is your next step of sacrifice. And so um, the the biggest thing like with Abraham and Isaac is that God can be trusted, that his word is true, that God made a promise to Abraham that through you, I'm going to bless the whole world. And now he took him 20 years to come through on that promise. But as Abraham is marching Isaac up the mountain, and by the way, Isaac's not like a little baby here, man. He's he's old enough to carry the wood. Mm. And Abraham's 120 years old or so, somewhere between 116 and 125, okay? So Isaac, not only does his father, Abraham, have to submit to the father, 
Isaac has to submit to his father. I mean, he could out, have you ever raced a hundred year old lately? I mean, you know, every 20 year old can win. And um, I think one of the keys to, to Abraham's faith is Abraham didn't do what God told him to do. He did what God is telling him to do. Mm, Cause mm. if he told, if he did what God told him to do, he would have finished the drill on his son, Isaac. God told him to sacrifice his son. So he did that. But when God told him not to, he did that. And sometimes I see great leaders and they're still stuck. Well, honestly, they used to be great leaders and their rear view mirror has gotten bigger than their windshield. And they're still operating in God, what, what God had told them to do years ago, instead of staying fresh to what God is telling them to do right now. And that mountain came into play later in scripture, didn't it? And I think it's one of the greatest principles in your book, man. Talk to me about Mount Moriah. Didn't stay Mount Moriah. What happened the next time there was a sacrifice on that mountain? Yeah, it's it's crazy how few Christians know this. Um, So I have the incredible privilege of leading leading trips of folks in my church to Israel. And so Mount Moriah is the mountain that 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 Abraham takes Isaac up on, it, it, it means the Lord will provide. And then a couple of thousand years later, God says his own son, Jesus Christ, to carry the wood to the top of that same mountain top and give the ultimate sacrifice. So what starts all the way back with Abraham and Isaac is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ on that same mountain. Mm-hmm. Mount Moriah mm-hmm. is Mount Calvary. That tomb, we're going to celebrate Easter here in just a couple of weeks. And this podcast, in fact, is going to release on the Monday after Easter Sunday. That tomb being empty was a big deal. That sacrifice, that body that was laid in that tomb, it wasn't there on Sunday morning. That old stone rolled back. That, that body had gotten up and Jesus had come walking out. What would you say to the person listening in today? about why that empty tomb matters to them. Because if the tomb is empty, anything is possible. My first book is called If the Tomb is Empty. My second book studies nine miracles in the New Testament that reveal God's, God's heart for you. And here's the thing, man. Here, <clears throat> we I preach this all the time here at our church. People come to me and say, Pastor, I am in an impossible situation. Like, I don't think you understand my finances or my health or my marriage is in an impossible situation. And years ago, I'd find myself saying, but you believe Jesus came out of the tomb, right? And they're like, of course. And one day it just fell out of my mouth. I go, well, if the tomb is empty, then anything is possible. If God can breathe new life into his dead son, then surely he can breathe new life into your marriage or into your finances or into your health situation or whatever it is. And I think we are in a desperate time where people are desperate for a move of God. And what we really need to be chasing, though, is not the miracle, the miracle maker. But we can believe God for the impossible because he's already pulled off the greatest miracle of all time. Mm-hmm. That he brought, well, first of all, that God would humble himself and put him put on flesh, come and live the perfect life hand himself over, be crucified, dead, and buried, and then fulfill the promise and on the third day roll away the stone and come walking in out. And if he walked out, the Bible says that that he is the firstborn among the dead. That word firstborn is, I mean, I know you know this. The Greek word is prototoko. It's where we get the word prototype. 
And so the way we make a prototype is like you try one out, and then when it works, you go mass production. Well, God sent his son Jesus as the prototype of from among the dead. Mm. He came out of mm. the grave first, and for everybody who would believe, we are the mass production. We will be just like him in the resurrection. It's a big deal, man. It is a big deal. I, You know, and I, I think about you. You wrote about these miracles, these nine miracles, which I cannot wait to get my hands on this book. What's the biggest miracle God's done in Joby Martin's life? As you look back and look ahead, what's the biggest miracle he did for you? I mean, there's no doubt about it. It's my salvation. I, I, I cannot get over the gospel. I wasn't raised in church, uh, in, in, at least from my perspective, got there by accident. Um, like I didn't seem worth saving, but he saved me anyway. And then not only did he redeem me and save me and rip out my heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh. And then he would use me. And, and I don't mean use me up. I mean, allow me to partner with him in the great expanse of his great commission. You know, one of the things I'm reminded of is, um, a few weeks ago, I was on the Southern steps where the spirit of God fell at Pentecost and Peter sees a crowd. And I love Peter, man. Peter makes me feel better about my own discipleship, <laughs> right? <laughs> Cause he's always going to talk first. He's always going to talk most. And he's like, Oh, there's a crowd. Maybe I should preach. Um, before the resurrection of Christ and, and before Christ reinstates Peter, the thing that got Peter in the most trouble was his mouth. I mean, think about it. They're on the mountain of transfiguration. Right. There's Jesus with Moses and Elijah. And he sticks his head in his, it is good that we are here. You know what? Maybe it's not about you right now, right? <laughs> he tells Jesus in Caesarea Philippi, he rebukes him because Jesus says he's going to the cross. And Jesus calls him the devil. Get behind me, Satan. Okay. He promises that he would never leave or forsake him. And he denies Christ three times. When Jesus needed him the most, the thing that got him in the most trouble was his mouth. And then what does God use when he fills him with his Holy Spirit? He preaches right. the very first Christian sermon, the very first church service. He uses the guy that can't keep his mouth shut, and he uses that very thing for his own glory, and the church is born. Hmm. You see, God can use the very thing that get used to get us in the most trouble or the thing we were most ashamed of or our biggest mess for the greatest message of all time. That God heals and God saves and God uses his children. Refreshing, wasn't it? Pastor Joby's perspective and his thoughts and his just life experience are just so helpful to us as we put handles on our own life and experiences. And I tell you what, he's just funny, he's fresh. And you can, you can see why his church has grown to be such an amazing flagship to churches all over the country. Thank you, Pastor Joby, for sharing your story with us. So, so good. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with a, a friend. Leave a rating and review on iTunes. It really does help people find their way to us. We're going to continue our string next week. We're going to be right back here next Monday talking to... Richard Blackaby about his newest book, The Ways of God. It is 
so good. And I've been able to dive into it over the break, and it is just fresh, it's real, and it's solid. And I think you're really, really going to enjoy it. So once again, thanks for joining me today. Now go be the leader that you were created to be in the space and place that God has put you. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Lynch with a Leader podcast with your host, Mike Lynch. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help more people hear it by subscribing and leaving a review wherever you may be listening. For full episode notes and more spiritual leadership resources, visit MikeLynch.com.